0: Sunday fun day. On the count of three, I want you to yell out your favorite baseball team. One, two, three. Go Braves. There's only one team, let's be honest. And it's the Braves. One guy yelled out the Yankees, security. No, just kidding. It's Sunday fun day. And let let me tell you why we do Sunday fun day. It's intentional. It's on purpose. And here's why. Because there is this lie that's floating around. That the enemy has sowed the seed of dishonesty and said that you can't have fun in church. And that's not true. The most fun I've ever had in my life is once I committed my life to Jesus Christ. Come on, if you're with me, say amen. And so today is Sunday fun day and it's a day where you've invited friends and family and so we're so honored at both of our campuses that you're here today. It's going to be a great day and I'm so excited to jump into the message today. I want to give you a challenge though if we can and we're calling it because the theme of Sunday fun day is Grand Slam. So I'm presenting to all of us at both of our campuses what we're calling the Grand Slam Challenge. The Grand Slam Challenge. Now, you know, in order to get a Grand Slam, the bases have to be loaded, and then the person at bat has to hit a home run. That, that's what determines a Grand Slam. Bases are loaded, and then a home run is said You get a Grand Slam. So I'm going to give you all four bases of the Grand Slam Challenge because I want, you to, I want you to take advantage of the challenge. If you're competitive like I am, and somebody puts a challenge in front of me, I'm all about that. So here's the challenge. The first, the first part of the challenge is today, and you did it. You showed up. Come on give yourselves a big round of applause. You made it. You made it on Sunday Fun Day. Now the second part of the challenge is this is I want you to show up next Sunday. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. It begins the Holy Week for us as Christians, and so next Sunday is going to be a great day at both of our campuses, and I want you to come and be a part of that. As a matter of fact, one of my really good friends, Chris Estrada, who is a national and international speaker, he's going to come and be sharing the message. I'm going to be here, but he's going to come and preach because he's got a word. I'm excited to do that. And then that's going to give me a couple of weeks to really allow God to continue to speak the word that he's put in my heart for Easter Sunday which is the third part of the Grand Slam Challenge. I want you to show up on Easter. If you're gonna to go to church any Sunday, you gotta go on Easter Sunday now, isn't that right? So I want you to come on Easter Sunday. And then to complete the full Grand Slam Challenge, we're encouraging everybody to show up and to attend what we call Move Track. MoveTrack is a great way for you to discover more about the life of your church, more about our vision and our mission, how we operate. Plus, we get to learn about you. We give you a spiritual gifts test. We give you a personality assessment so that you can see how God has wired you. So if today, if you're new to the church and then you take the Grand Slam challenge, you would complete that challenge by checking out MoveTrack. Because there you could even make a decision to say, hey, I want this to be my home church and we're a little biased around here, but we believe that at both of our campuses, this is the best church this side of heaven. Come on, if you believe it, say amen. I love it. So this is the Grand Slam Challenge. Everybody got it? If you got it, both campuses say, I got it. Lock it in, all right? So you showed up today, attend next week, attend Easter Sunday, and then check us out for Move Track, and you won't be disappointed. Talking about Easter, I want you to write this down because we've got multiple gatherings that are happening on Easter weekend So for those of you that are part of our South Metro Atlantic campus, we've got three different gatherings for you to choose from. So as you make preparation for that weekend, we've got a Saturday night service that starts at 6 p.m. We've got two Sunday morning gatherings or services that start at 9 and 11 a.m., All three of these are absolutely identical in terms of the order of service and the message and all of that. So if you'd like to come on Saturday night so that you can have Sunday to spend with grandma or do whatever your family uh, traditions are, that's a great opportunity there. And then again, Sunday morning at 9 and 11. And then at Go Church at our Germantown campus, they've got a 10 a.m. gathering. And I'm telling you now, Go Church family, you want to show up early to make sure that there's a seat for you. If not, you may have to stand up the side of the, the, the aisle in the movie theater that place is going to be packed and so you can see all of the gatherings that are happening on Easter weekend so I hope that you make plans to be a part of what God is doing It's going to be a great day and if you're traveling that weekend, listen to my heart for a moment just be in church somewhere Is't that good just be in church somewhere anybody thankful for Easter come on now I'm excited all right so today is Sunday fun day and I'm, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to give you Five questions that I believe will transform your life. Five questions that I believe will transform your life. Now, all of the questions are going to be baseball-themed because that's what today is. It's Grand Slam Sunday Funday. So all of the questions are themed around this idea of baseball or sports. But I think if you lean in for the next few minutes, you'll really see how these five questions could tug at your heartstrings, and if answered and followed through, they could absolutely transform your life, no matter what part of the spiritual spectrum you find yourself on, no matter the family dynamic, whether you've grown up in church or maybe today is your first time in church ever. You get these five questions, and you process them, you think on them, and you answer them. I believe that they're really going to transform your life. Now, I'm only going to answer four of the five questions and then at the end of the gathering at both of our campuses, our campus pastors, they're going to come, and they're going to give you the most challenging question that anybody could ever ask you. They're going to give you the most challenging question that you could ever ask yourself. And so I want to jump in today, all right? If you're ready, sound ready, both campuses. Get something to write with. Here we go. Question number one. Again, all of them are baseball-themed. This is an important one. Who are my teammates? Who are the people... On my team and I think if I'm being honest this is one of the most important questions that you could ever ask yourself and here's why because ladies and gentlemen who you surround yourself with matters you know Kimberly and I we were youth pastors for a long time and we had one sermon that we always preached and the idea or the the, the, the heartbeat of that message was this you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And so, no matter how old we are or what season of life we find ourselves in, who we run with matters, who we surround ourselves with matters. As a matter of fact, the proverb says it like this When you walk with the wise, you become wise. But when you surround yourself and your companionship is with foolish people, you will suffer harm. And the Bible says you've got to get some people on your team that are wise because you act like who you run with. And if you surround yourself with idiots, well, you can finish the rest of that thought. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I'm talking to everybody today, but let me talk to the teenager That's in the room at both of our campuses for a moment. This is why your parents, they have guidelines, they have rules, they have restrictions on who you can hang out with. Listen to me, teenager. It's not about uh, rejection. It's about protection. Because when you get connected to bad company, it will ruin the good morals that your family has tried to bring you up with. Come on, help me preach. And this is a hard truth, but it is the truth. Perhaps for many of you, this, this game that we call life has been so hard. It's been so challenging. It's been so difficult because you've been playing with the wrong teammates. You put people on your team that aren't pushing you towards the potential and the destiny that's on the inside of you. You've put people on your team that are pulling you away from that potential and that destiny. And let me tell you, you need people that will always push you towards what's best and not people that will pull you away from what's best. You need people that will push you towards the goals, push you towards the dreams, Push you towards the objectives that you set. You don't need people that tell you you'll never make it. You'll never amount to anything. There is no hope for a better future. And let me tell you this. Lean in here too. You need people that will push you towards Christ. Not people that will pull you away from Jesus. And so if you're playing with teammates that are making you do things that are contrary to the word of God, get a new team. Come on out. And here's why. And this is what I believe because you'll never be able to do all that God wants you to do until you get the right people around you. You'll never be able to do everything that God wants for you to do until you get the right people on your team. And this is what I've learned. Those who accomplish great things are those who have great friends. Let me say it again. Those who accomplish great things are those who have great friends. Some of my worst decisions in my life, some of the dumbest decisions that I have ever made in my life were made because I was influenced by bad teammates. Some of the the guilt and the regret that I still have today, and thank God that it's covered by the blood, somebody say amen, the blood of Jesus, But I look back and I think, man, some of the bad decisions that I've made, I made because I had bad teammates that told me you should do that. You should go there. You should be involved in that. And it led me down the path of destruction. So who are your teammates? And I was thinking about this, and I couldn't help but consider King David. King David was known as a man after God's own heart. And King David was far from perfect. But he saw the potential that was on the inside of him. And so he often surrounded himself with people that would set him up for success. And not put people on his team that would tear him down in failure. And over his lifetime, I mean, and and a lot of people followed David. At one time, David had what were called David's mighty men. Which were made up of about 30 different incredible warriors. But over his lifetime, I think I can summarize His most intimate friendships with three different types of people. And I think you and I, we need these same types of people in our life as well. See, when David was a boy, he had a mentor friend named Samuel. And Samuel saw something in David that David could not see in himself. Don't we need people like that? Samuel saw something inside of David that David's own family couldn't see that David possessed, that there's a lot to the story of Samuel and David's mentor friendship. But here's one verse in 1 Samuel 16. It says this, then Samuel, he took the horn of oil and he anointed David in front of all of his brothers, in front of all of his family. Because if you know anything about the story, God sent Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king and Jesse presented all of the sons except for David. And Samuel knew. No, nope, there's something special about this David. And so Samuel said, do you have any other sons? And they said, well, we got one more, but he's out in the pasture. He, he's protecting the sheep from lions and tigers and bears. Thank you. And he said, bring him to me and we will not sit down until he shows up. David shows up, and then Samuel, because of the confidence of the anointing on David's life, he anointed him in front of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. But that wasn't the only relationship. Another relationship that David had that really helped him to accomplish great things is that he had a best friend named Jonathan. Jonathan walked in when everybody else was walking out. And Jonathan would say things like this to David. God chose you to be king. And whatever I can do to help you get there, I'm all in. And listen to me. Several times, Jonathan even risked his own life to protect the life of his dear friend David. One verse, I could give you a ton, but one verse is 1 Samuel 18. It says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as himself. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a best friend if you ever had one. The type of friendships that we need are people that would put their life on the line to protect yours. That would walk in when everybody else walked out. But Samuel and Jonathan weren't the only types of relationships or friendships that David had. David also had somebody that wasn't afraid to speak the truth. See, David, even with these close friends, he still got himself in a mess. David became very arrogant. He became very uh, greedy. He became very self-sufficient and felt like he could rely on his own strength. And so then there came a friend named Nathan. And Nathan took off the gloves, if you know what I'm talking about. And we all need these types of friends because the truth is this, we all have blind spots. We all have areas in our lives where we need a friend to say, look, you don't need to do that. You don't need to say that. You don't need to go there. You don't need to drink that. You don't need to touch that. You don't need to smoke that. You don't need to date him. Y'all not going to help me preach today. That's all right. You need to dump her. You need to move on. Okay, pack your bags and go back to Singlesville, all right? Just move on back to Singlesville. You don't need to hang out with them any longer. And that's how Nathan was. One verse, 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now listen, he didn't say it like this. David, you're the man. No, he said, David, you are the man. See, Nathan was telling this story about how somebody came and slaughtered a sheep from someone that was very poor. And David said, how how could somebody take from the poor for their own gain? And then Nathan said, and that, sir, is who you are. We need friendships like this. Do you have any friends like that? Because who are your teammates? Who are the people that are around you? Because the Lord gave me this thought. The right team helps you fulfill your dream. Come on, give Jesus praise. The right team helps you fulfill your dream. All right, the second question. You having fun today? This is a big one. What do I do when I make an error? Oh, Jesus, help us here. What do I do when I mess up? What do I do when I when I make an error? I've told you this uh, recently, but I'm an assistant coach in my son's little league baseball team. It's a 10U baseball team, and at that age, there are a lot of errors. There's a lot of mistakes. And you can see the confidence of these young men and women when they make an error, they put their head down in defeat. And I think that if not careful, we can be conditioned to do the same even as we grow. The enemy loves for you to mess up and he loves for the weight of that guilt and the weight of that regret and the weight of that mistake to rest on top of you so that it buries you in a coffin so that you can't step into the potential that God has for you. And if you can answer this question, because this is a big one, and here's why. We all mess up. Come on, somebody ought to say amen right there. I know you don't like to admit it, but the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that every single one of us, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, we all make mistakes. You will not live a perfect life. There is only one who's perfect, and his name was Jesus. Come on now. You know, and if you got this idea that you're never going to mess up, you're going to have a lot of letdown in your life because probably about every day you and I, we make an error. We make a mistake. And I I want you to write this thought down because this is so true, but the mistake itself is not what defines us because we all make them, we all mess up. So the mistake should not become our identity. It's not what defines us, but, but what we do with ourselves after the mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what defines us. So my, my poor choice, my bad decision, that doesn't define me. No, no, no. How I respond to the error that I've made, that will become my identity in the future. And I want to show you something. I've got to do this quick, but if you'll give me a few minutes, I'll, I want to give you a life comparison of two individuals in the scriptures that both made humiliating errors. Uh, The the mistakes that they made, the errors that they made were so big, it seemed impossible for them to ever be able to recover from the mistake. And these two individuals were actually very close to Jesus by way of relationship. They were two of Jesus' disciples. These two individuals are known as Judas the Iscariot, and then Simon, Peter. And I want you to see the errors that they made first, and then I want you to watch with how they responded to their mistakes. So, so let's lean in for a few verses here and look at the mistake Judas made. So one of the 12, his name was Judas. He went to the chief priest, and this is what he said. What are you willing to give me if I betray Jesus. How much how much are you going to pay me if I betray the Messiah, if I turn him into you? and the scripture says that they weighed out about 30 pieces of silver. Now it's hard to determine what the 30 pieces of silver would be valued at in today's you know uh, finances, but somewhere between 90 and three thousand dollars. Now I know that's a broad, kind of idea of how much it would cost today but even on the top end of that paycheck 3 grand to sell out Jesus? Watch this. Verse the next verse 16. And from then on, the moment that he got the money, he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So you see the mistake that Judas made. Again, humiliating and almost at the point of no return. Now watch the mistake that Simon Peter made. It's in Matthew 26, verse 31. I'm going to give you a few. you got to read the whole chapter here, all of Matthew 26, to get the full context. I'm going to summarize it for you. It says, then Jesus said to them, so Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's having this meal with them, and he's fellowshipping with the disciples. And then he says to all of the disciples, he says, look, every single one of you, you're going to fall away because of me this night you're all going to deny me you're all going to make an error and then Peter who is always so like zealous for God he said to me said look even though everybody else might mess up I will never make a mistake can I tell you that pride always comes before the fall he said hey I know that all of my other brothers they're gonna mess up but for me I will never mess up. And Jesus rebukes him. And he said, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And from verse 35 all the way through the remainder of the chapter, you see Peter making mistake after mistake after mistake. And when he made the third mistake, here's what happened. He cursed. He began to swear, and he said, I don't know this man, and immediately, what happened? (laughs) Cock-a-doodle-doo. The rooster crowed. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Both of these men betrayed Jesus. Both of these men made an error. Both of these men sold Jesus out. But the only difference at this point in their decision is that only one of them got paid for it. They both sinned. They both messed up. But I want you to see the difference of the outcome of these two people. Because it's almost mind-blowing. Because listen to me, and I showed you this a moment ago and I said it, but the mistake is not what defines us. Because we all mess up. And we're going to continue to mess up. Thank God for his grace because his grace is sufficient. But what do we do after the error? What do we do after we mess up? Listen, every time a batter gets up to the plate and he strikes out and he comes to the dugout, what does the coach say? The coach says, get him next time. Keep your head up. Because in sports, it's all about confidence. It's all about the mind game." And when you lose it up here, you'll lose it in here. Come on, somebody. So it's not about the mistake itself. God knew that you and I would mess up. And so he sent his only son, Jesus, to cover all of the multitude of sin that you and I would do. But guess what? We're alive. So when we mess up, how will we respond to the error? Watch Judas's response. Then when Judas had betrayed him, he saw that he had been condemned and he felt remorse and he returned the money. It's too late. The decision was already made. He took the money and he gave it back to the chief priest, back to the elders. And watch what happens. And he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then they said this. They said, what is that to us? And I want you to see these four words. Because this is the plot of the enemy. They said, see to that yourself. And here's what Judas did in the next verse. Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple, into the sanctuary. He departed and he went away and he hanged himself. The error was so catastrophic that he couldn't handle it. So he committed suicide. He took his life. He stopped living. Can I tell you, church, when you mess up, this is the ultimate goal of the enemy. The Bible says in John 10:10 10, 10, that the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. He took his life. Now now watch the outcome of Simon Peter though. Cuz the next time we read about Simon Peter after his error is on the day of Pentecost. And now all of a sudden Simon Peter is standing on the balcony of a two-story apartment building and this is what he's doing. He's preaching. And I want you to see these first few words because he's not alone. He's standing with the other disciples. And watch, he raises his voice and he preached to them in verse 40. And Peter continued preaching. And I just wanted to highlight this. He preached for a long time. So when I go long, I'm just trying to be like people in the Bible. So I just want you to see that. One story is Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached so long that a teenager got tired and fell asleep and fell out of a window. And nobody's died while I'm preaching, so all is good, you know? So he's preaching and he's urging all of his listeners save yourselves from this crooked generation. I gotta hurry, but listen both of these men deny Jesus, both of them make an error, but one of them commits suicide. And the other, Jesus declares, it is on you, on this rock, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's the difference? Because everybody makes mistakes and they were no different. They made theirs. Have you ever wondered why why do people make an error but their outcome in life is different than my outcome in life when I've messed up too? And I'm going to tell you, here's the answer. It's because how they handled the other side of the mistake. See, in Matthew 27, verse number 4, and you read it, they instructed Judas, see to that yourself. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. The difference is this. Judas tried to handle his error alone. So he walked away from his friends. He walked away from his church. He walked away from the one that was there to save him. And he tried to handle the the error all on his own. And let me tell you, the enemy loves that. The Bible likens us to sheep. And the enemy loves to get a sheep out of the flock, out of the fold. Because when we get isolated, we're more susceptible to the attack of the enemy. Come on now. And Judas thought... The weight of the error, the weight of the guilt, the weight of the shame. And some of you may be feeling that. He thought, I can handle it by myself in church. You can never handle it alone. While Peter went back to the group, Peter recognized, I cannot handle the error that I've made by myself. I need my friends. I need my covering. I need my church. I need my accountability group. Do you see that? So when you make an error, never let the mistake define you. Never let it define you, and never try to handle the mistake on your own. It's why God gave us the church. It's why God gave us family, so that when we mess up, there will be people there to help you get up and keep on going. Come on, that's a great place to put your hands together. Come on, a little bit louder, both campuses. Come on. Woo. This is good, right? What do you do when you make an error? You get up. You don't let it define you. And you don't try to handle the weight of it by yourself. Here's a third question. I wish I could. This is a whole series, by the way. But I'll take the time that's given to me today and, and get through all four of these, and then the campus pastors will finish on the last one. The third one is this: who is my opponent? On the count of three, both campuses, ask this question aloud. You ready? One, two, three. Who is my you know? This is a big one. Because in sports. Knowing your opponent is everything. Uh, To summarize this question in one one, uh, word, this would be considered preparation. You're preparing for the game. You're preparing for the battle. You're preparing for the conflict. There's actually a pretty famous mantra that says, if you fail to prepare, then you prepare to fail. And one way that, that players... And one way that that teams will prepare is by watching game film. So they'll sit in a room and they'll put game film on the screen for two reasons. There's more than two, but let me give you the primary two reasons that players and teams will watch game film. The first reason is this, because as they watch game film, they're able to study the strengths And the weaknesses of their opponent. But they also watch game film so that they can study the strengths and the weaknesses of themselves. Watch this. Hear me. The teams who best know the strengths and the weaknesses of their opponents and the teams that know best the strengths and the weaknesses of themselves are the teams that have the greatest advantage to win. Because they've prepared. And I gotta do this so fast, but you need to know this. You wanna know who your opponent is? The Bible says in Ephesians 6 you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but your battle is against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. Let me summarize all of that into this thought your opponent is the devil, it's Satan its his purpose is to steal kill and destroy we talked about that but he's not your only adversary you can also be your greatest opponent so here's what i want to do really quick i want to look at the game film of the devil because the devil isn't as smart as we give him credit for see from the beginning of humanity the devil attacks every opponent with the same three keys his game plan never changes It always starts with doubt, then it moves to deception, and it ends with destruction. This is his game plan. When you watch the film of the enemy, this is what he does, person after person, purpose after purpose, calling after calling. He looks at an individual. He looks at a marriage. He looks at a teenager. he, He looks at someone that's trying to do right, and he starts with doubt. And doubt will always lead to deception, and deception always leads to destruction. It started in Genesis with Adam and Eve. God said, look, this is paradise, and it is yours. All of it. But, God said, don't eat from that one tree. Don't don't touch that one tree. Now, you and I, when we read the story, we think, come on, how foolish can they be? But It's like when you were a kid and your mama said, don't touch the cookie jar. But you gonna touch it anyway, right? So God said, you can have it all except this. And then what did the enemy do? You can read it at your own time. Beginning in verse number one of chapter number three, he said, did God really say? Did God really say not to eat of that? And he said, surely, and then he leads to deception. He says, Surely you're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to eat that because if you eat it, you'll be like him. Your eyes will be open to wisdom and knowledge. And he says, This isn't about, you know, God killing humanity. He says, You you can have it all. It's the same tactic. And then what happened? You get to verse number 13 and 14. God shows up on the scene. Adam and Eve, they know that they're busted. And God says, now there is a curse. Now there is a curse. I'm helping you today. And I hope it's being received well because this is the plan of the enemy. He wants to present doubt. He wants you to to have deception, to be deceived. And then ultimately he wants there to be destruction over your family. Do you see that? But I think a lot of times we put the blame on the enemy when all of our problems is not just the enemy's fault. I'll get a couple of you to say amen to that, and that's okay, but sometimes the greatest difficulties in our life happen because of self-inflicted stupid storms, where it's not God's fault, it's not the devil's fault, pardon the grammar, but it's your fault, like it's me and you, and at the end of the day, all responsibility falls on us, and if you're taking notes, write this down, because I really believe that our greatest battle is often against our own flesh. Now, I know that we're fighting spiritual warfare. I know that there's an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. That wants there to be doubt and deception and destruction. But listen to me. Sometimes our greatest battle is this. It's our flesh. And you have to remember that we were all born into sin. We live in a sin-filled world. And we've got this sin nature. And because of the doubt and the deception... And the destruction caused by the enemy at the beginning of humanity, you and I, lean in for a second, I'm almost done. You and I also are tempted by three things. So you can't just look at the game film of the enemy to know your opponent. You have to look at your game film too. And in 1 John 2, we see what we wrestle with. The Bible says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world. So, you wanna see your game film? Rick Warren summarized this scripture into our game film the three things that you and I are always tempted with. You ready? Watch this gold, guys or girls, and glory. I want more money, I want more things, I want material possession, I want more stuff. I never can drive a nice enough car. I can never wear the nicest of clothes. I can never have the nicest of house. I can never make enough money. And there's not much of a problem with the desire to accomplish more and be more because the root of evil isn't just the cash, it's the love of it. The desire to make more cash, make more money. And we get caught up in the lust of the flesh. I want, I want, I want. And come on, let's be honest. We live in a very consumeristic country. But it's also the lust of the eyes. This is why so many people, they have no problem having intimacy before they get married. Maybe I'm from the old school, but my mama always taught me that there ain't no bing bing without the ring ring. Come on now, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Like you save yourself for holy matrimony. Do you you get that? It's here that, that men and women won't commit to marriage, but they'll be content with cohabitating and living together. Now, I know that's not a popular sermon, but you need to know the truth because this is the game film on you. That we get caught up with the lust of the flesh and then the lust of the eyes. You get me? And then we also get caught up in glory, the pride of life. I want recognition. I want fame. I want acknowledgement. I want status. I want achievement. And this is a very slippery slope. So you have to know who your opponent is, and your opponent isn't just the enemy who presents doubt and deception and destruction. But your greatest battle is also your flesh. To overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I know this may not feel like the great, greatest place to say amen, but can you do that today? Come on, because this is truth in Jesus' name. And it's the truth that will set you free. One more question for me, and then our campus pastors will close. What do I do? When life throws me a curveball. You know, I actually inserted this question about midweek because I know what this feels like. I don't know. There's this thought that I had that life would and the success of life and the growth to life would be linear. You would start here and then you would just soar. (laughs) But how many of you know that life is not like that? life is made up of twists and turns and ups and downs and goods and bads and celebrations and pain so what do you do when life throws you a curveball one of the greatest stories of life throwing a curveball is found in the old testament i'm going to give you this really quick it's found in the old testament it's the story of joseph Uh, joseph's story lasts about 15 chapters give or take and so I want to read all of it to you word for word. I'm just kidding. Seeing if you're still listening to me. Obviously, we don't have time to look at each chapter, but I want to give you a synopsis of life throwing curveballs at Joseph. Beginning in Genesis chapter 37, we learn that Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. It was his first son through his, watch this, favorite wife, Rachel. In Genesis 37, we're introduced to Joseph as a teenager. He's 17 years old, and he's taking care of the flock with his brothers. In verse number 3 of Genesis 37, we learn that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the other siblings. I can relate to that, because I'm the favorite in my family, too. I hope my siblings are watching, baby. And Jacob loved Joseph because he was given to him in Jacob's old age. And Jacob made for Joseph, his son, a gift. And you know this. Even people that don't uh, come to church often or read the Bible a lot, they've heard about Joseph's coat of many colors. So he made this coat for him. And and the brothers knew that their father had this great love for Joseph, and, and they hated their brother for it. To make matters worse, Joseph was a teenager, and so he wasn't fully mature in his thinking. And he comes to them and tells them about a dream that he has. And in the dream, he says, all of you, brothers, were bowing down to me because I am the authority. Well, they didn't like that. They already hated him, and now they wanted to kill him. And that was the plan. We'll kill him. But Joseph had an older brother named Reuben. And Reuben said he objected to outright murder. And he convinced his brothers, let's just bury him in a pit. That's a good idea. And then Reuben planned, I'll come back later and I'll free my brother from the pit. Well, by the time Reuben came back, the brothers had already sold Joseph as a slave. Can I just pause right here and just give you some encouraging news? You thought your family had dysfunction? Come on now. So, up to this point, Joseph had been in a pit and then he was put in the back of a pickup truck to be sold as a slave. In chapter number 39, we learn about a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar was an officer to the Egyptian ruler, Pharaoh, and Potiphar actually bought Joseph out of slavery. In verse number four of chapter 39, Joseph found favor with Potiphar, and so Potiphar placed Joseph over all of the affairs of the house. Now Joseph is in charge of everything that Potiphar owns. And in verse number six, we see that Joseph was handsome, and we learn that Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph. So she tried to seduce him. She tried to lure him and tempt him. And at every turn, he would say no. And I want you to consider this because that is a miracle in itself that a young man who now has no family, he's been in a pit, he's been sold into slavery, etc., is able to resist the temptation of a beautiful woman standing there with no clothes on. She didn't like that she couldn't seduce him, so one day she grabs him as he's trying to escape and rips a piece of his clothing, and she uses that clothing as false evidence that they had been together. If you're with me, Sam, there. Well, when she told Potiphar, her husband, what had happened, the Bible says in verse number 20 of, Genesis, uh, of chapter 39 in Genesis that Potiphar became angry and put him into prison. Curveball, curveball, curveball. So, just to recap, he's been in a pit, he's been in the back of a pickup truck, and now he's in prison. While he's in prison, a couple of guys have a dream. And through the Spirit of the Lord, Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. And this begins to spread about this kind of supernatural ability that Joseph possesses. And in chapter 41, one day, Pharaoh, the ruler, has a dream. And he wonders, who could interpret the dream that I have? And I'm going to give you one guess. Guess who they called? Joseph. You all are so smart. He interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was so impressed That Pharaoh put Joseph second in command. He was literally over everything. There was only one person with more power, one earthly person with more power, and it was Pharaoh. So watch this. He goes from the pit to the pickup truck to prison, and now he's in a palace. Genesis 42. Pharaoh's dream was about a famine. And the famine hit the land. And Jacob's father and the brothers were running out of food. So Jacob heard that they're selling grain in Egypt. And so he sends Joseph's brothers to go buy some grain. One more guess. Guess who's in charge of the selling and the distribution of the grain. Joseph. The brothers show up. They don't recognize him, and they bow down in front of him. I feel the Lord. Just as the dream was foretold. So here's what Joseph did. Joseph killed all the brothers, and he buried them in that same pit. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I've been watching Netflix a little too much. (laughs) No, no, Joseph didn't do that. Joseph had mercy on them. Now he made them wait a few days. But he had mercy on them. And he fed them and he gave them money and he filled their bags with grain. And watch what he says. One verse in Genesis 50 and I'm done. Watch this. What you all meant for evil. God meant it for good. What human for evil, God meant it for good. You want to know what to do when life throws you a curveball? With every curveball, you realize what was meant for evil, God will turn it for good. Come on. I wish I had a few hundred people at both campuses that would agree with that. Yeah. What the devil meant for evil, God will turn for good. And then I want you to recognize that the Lord is always with you. All through that story, I don't have time to show you, but the scripture said in the pit, in the palace, in the prison, etc. He said, and the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with joseph can i tell you that with every curveball the lord will be with you he's a faithful god that said i've never left you i've never forsaken you i've never turned my back on you i'm not walking out on you In the good times i'm there when curveballs come i'm there too and then the last thing is this you've got to remember to be faithful because joseph was faithful All right, here's the last question. Our worship teams are coming. Our campus pastors are coming. Here's what I'd like for you to do at both of our campuses. I don't want you to leave, but I want you to stand, and I want you to consider for one minute before they ask you this question. How can I make it home? Come on, stand with me, both campuses. Don't leave just yet. How can I make it home?